for us for this move to our new facility to prepare for a new harvest coming to New Song. And in 2017, I believe that he is pushing us to tell our story. That there were some things in, in our lives and the realm of spiritual maturity that had to be settled before we could go forward. That some of the, the ways we're responding to unbelievers that we've gotten sucked into in our culture, uh, whether it be social media or otherwise, that God wanted us as New Song, and I'm sure other churches, because in preparing for this, I was amazed at how many other sermons I heard from other ministers of larger churches where God has been speaking the same message to them, that we have to get over some of our pettiness and some of the things that has crept into the church before people be willing to hear our story. And so I believe as God is leading us into a, a theme for next year of tell our story or tell the story, that as he leads us to that, that we will be able to lay to rest. And while we will focus on Christmas, while we will focus on, on this holiday season and messages, the intent in this focus is to finally draw everything that we've pre- everything I've preached in this last year down to the point... Let me get y'all's attention. Everybody's so focused on Ken. That's <laughs> right. He was doing me a favor, but I'm preaching. And I see all the eyes are right here. So back, back here. So in case you missed it, I'm going to start over. All right? So I've harped on some things. I've harped on the... I'm just going to be very clear. And, and later in the message, I planned to set this up to say, my intention is not to offend you. My intention is to be your pastor the best I can. Uh, not for to save face for me or... You know, people have laughed about that video on YouTube, The Honest Preacher, where he gets really frustrated at his church. Yes, an amen. Um, and he gets really frustrated at his church, and he starts telling how, you know, this guy's the worst or that guy. And you're making me look bad in front of God. And that's not, that's not my real feeling or my intention. It's that I have no control over anything only God does. But as my job as a shepherd, I want to prepare you because whether you know it or not, you have a direct influence over, over other people in other congregations, maybe over other ministers. And it's not just our job to, to navigate this ministry of new song, but to navigate as a Christian community and others. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the Christian community right now that needs to be corrected. And we've got to be the advocates to see that happen. So this year has been all about getting us over some of the pettiness that we're getting sucked into some of the immaturity that we're getting sucked into and to help us realize that we have a larger task. There is a real reason for this season, which has been made to be a little quip and a little bit of cliche, but there's a real reason for the season that I'm afraid that we are losing even in the church because of the immaturity that has crept in. So we're going to get into it and I'll reset that when I'm ready for it. So that way we don't have more distraction. Um, this thing is not the most dirty. Um, so the title of, it really will be a series, and I'll tell you that after I wrestled uh, with this, and even this morning I was feverishly typing some additional parts to my message, but, um, uh, you know, I have some key folks out there in ministry who I know and trust uh, that, that they're dividing of the word, and it's amazing how much sometimes that me as an inexperienced minister, God will put some in my heart and align right up with some guy that's been doing it for decades that's just an amazing orator and speaker and a divider of the word. And so uh, the, the title really of this is Xmas. Yeah, somebody said, uh-oh. I said it. I said the dirty word, right, in church. 
for this season, Xmas. But today is the first Sunday of Advent, and I'll explain a little more about that in a minute. So if you want to prepare for our scripture, today will be a little different. I'm going to hit our scripture just a few times through the message, but Luke chapter 2, and I will start in verse 41. Instead of us just digging in and looking at just the story of Christmas as you are probably typically ready for at this time, the story of a baby Jesus alone and focus on the manger, I want us to look a little further into chapter 2, a little towards the end, uh, starting verse 41. It's going to seem like a strange place to take us into the Christmas story. So I'll read this to you, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, as I usually do. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at, at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished, uh, the day, finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So let me stop there for a moment. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. I got left at Royals Stadium, baseball stadium, till 2 a.m. in the morning on a youth group function where they had two vans going, and someone thought it would be funny to call out my name when they took roll call, and they were staying an hour away. And what had happened is I had stopped for a minute to tie my shoe. I was having a little bit of side ache, if I remember right, down those big turnstiles. And when I looked up, I could not see my youth group. I was in seventh grade. I was shorter than I am now, and I took off looking. And I don't know what time it was then, but I remember as the parking lot began to thin and thin and thin over the course of probably what seemed like hours, might have just been 30 minutes or an hour, but eventually I'm watching the last few vehicles pulling out of those large parking lots, and here comes this little security golf cart, comes up and guy says, you must be lost. And I was thinking, even at my unwise seventh grade mind, you're a genius. Because <laughs> I'm a seventh grader standing out here in an empty parking lot and there's no vehicles. What could have been a curse turned out to be a blessing. I met ball players. They signed ball. They took me to this room where they had all memorabilia and loaded my arms full of stuff. And we were, I was having a blast. We were shooting automatic water guns on golf carts having wars. Um, you know, I got to see everything. Then when we ran out of that stuff to do, I'm kicked up with one of those humongous bags of popcorn that goes to the floor like this, watching a movie with the owner of the stadium who happened to be there late. When in comes, and I can't remember which youth pastor, but it seems to me that he was fairly new. Comes walking in and he was sweaty and pale and it's two in the morning and it looked like someone had just killed his only child. And he was, because he had left the boss's son at a major league ball stadium till two in the morning. And I was like, hey, yeah, this is awesome. I was showing all my stuff, you know. So, you know, I imagine I was pretty close to that age. So I can relate to Jesus in a different sense. I think Jesus was probably having a good time too. Um, but let's, let's continue on. It says, um, when they finished, finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now keep in mind, there's a bunch of people traveling for the Passover, they've been traveling back. So it wasn't like Mary and Joseph were just out in the desert, and they're, they've been talking since, you know, since they left. And like, oh, wait, where's our son after a day? And there's a group of people, and as you know, like a Walmart, sometimes you think your kids are right there, and they're gone. So let's don't be too hard on them yet. So they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of teachers, 
both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look. Now, I don't think it actually sounded like that. Because I remember losing one of my kids. Like, Son, why have you done this to us? Look. Your father and I sought you anxiously. Now, that sounds Shakespeareanly for what I think was probably a little rougher. <laughs> and he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, my family would be like, and you back-talked me three days looking for you? Not another word. <sighs> That's a word. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, he goes on and he said to them, why did you seek me? Be about my father's business. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. See, Christmas has become the most commercialized holiday in the world. It's because of this commercialization, we as a church need to seek a way to always keep New Song Church for its future and its future generations focused on the real meaning of this season. And I'm not one for tradition. In fact, the DNA of New Song, we are actually anti-tradition. And here's the thing, there's a difference between appreciation and honoring the what, who've gone before, who've laid the groundwork, um, even the culture of that time. When we sing hymns, it may not be in the speak in the language of today, but we still feel the spiritual anointing of that because of the groundwork that was laid and, and the lives that were being lived out who wrote those songs. See, it's the lives that were lived out that wrote the words. That anointing is why we feel the emotion we do when we sing them because of that kindred spirit. That's why some songs do nothing for you because some people just want to jump on in there and write a song. You know, but that, that's it. So I'm not in favor of just tradition for tradition's sake. However, just as God challenged the Israelites to do whatever it took to remember what God had done to rescue them, for instance, out of Egypt, um, we should also do what it takes to preserve our future, uh, preserve for our future generations what God has done to rescue us. In other words, we should make sure that how we celebrate this season is setting up our future generations to remember the things that God has even done in our lives and before us and before those folks. Because of this, I want to begin a Christmas, this Christmas season leading our church in a tradition where we will focus on the celebration of Advent. Typically celebrated by the liturgical churches such as the Anglican, Episcopalian, or Lutheran churches, there's this term, this term Christmas is becoming more and more commercialized and the meaning be, being more and more hijacked by commercialization, and the term Christmas has evolved into something it was never supposed to be. When we say Christmas, I know for a fact that it's not carrying the same meaning that it should, that it used to. I want us to anchor ourselves in something that has a rich theology, a, a biblical history, and the real story of God wrapping himself in human flesh. So I want to explain to you what the word Advent means. For those of you who maybe didn't grow up in church or you have uh, no church background, I want to explain what this word means because I, I sense that we'll be using it in the holiday seasons to come for generations at New Song. The word Advent literally means the coming or the arrival. So the focus of the entire season of Advent is focused on the birth of Jesus Christ, which is his first coming or his first arrival or his first 
Advent at Christmas. So you have this idea of Advent being a coming or a story of the birth of Christ. And, and, but it's not just a term for a historical event. This is the story or celebration of the willingness of God to identify with the uh, frailty of man by becoming one of us so he might save us. So this coming, uh, this birth of Christ, it's not the story just of a baby born in a major, what about a lowly place, and, and that kind of thing. It's actually the story of God's willingness to identify so much with our frailty that he would have his only son be wrapped in human flesh for the purpose of saving us. Advent not only focuses on the salvation of man in the here and now because what he did in his birth and ultimately what he did on the cross, but salvation also being something eternal. And so Advent not only focuses on what happened at Christmas and at salvation by what he did on the cross, but also what is going to happen in the second Advent or the second coming. There's a deep focus in Advent on the return of Christ or his second coming, his second Advent where he doesn't come as the baby in swaddling clothes, but he comes as the king of kings and lord of lords. So Advent has this double focus. Advent is all about the story of Christ, not just in the past as history, but also in the future as to what is to come. In a sense, Advent looks back to the first coming, the baby in major, so there is this tether towards, but there's also this tether towards the future uh, as we celebrate Christmas as Advent, uh, focused towards the second coming. So he's going to come as the conquering king. And so Advent is a reminder to us that Christ has come, Christ is present in this world today, and Christ will return in power and authority at the second coming. So when we truly get this, when we truly understand this concept of Advent, it provides a basis for kingdom living. Now listen, if you read the Word of God, and if you're absorbing now as history, and as that is as far as the meaning has really carried your life to this point, this is where the breakdown is why you may have trouble having a kingdom lifestyle. See, kingdom lifestyle is righteous living that arises from a profound sense that we live between the times. And we are called to be faithful stewards for what is entrusted to us as a people of God who live in between the times. And I'm talking about in between the times when Christ came, he died, and when he's coming back. We are the in-between generations. So as the church celebrates God's breaking into history through the incarnation, that is Christmas, him coming in the flesh, that's when Jesus was wrapped in human flesh, that's the incarnation. We celebrate the incarnation, but we also celebrate the future consummation of all of history, uh, of when Christ returns to establish his kingdom on earth. We are in the middle. We're like the middle child. We are the middle child, the one who is not, not spoiled, right? We're not, spoiled. We're not the one who uh, has to be the grown-up yet. We're in process. We're that middle child, and we are in a process of where we are to focus on just loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself. And so we must confess that responsibility as people who are commissioned in the in-between times, love the Lord our God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. So Advent is marked by a spirit of expectation, anticipation, preparation, but also longing. And that last part is key, because if you lose the longing, then it becomes just history. 
That, that means that what you shine up, sign up to come for every Sunday and Wednesday night and any other function has become more like a history class for you. You're coming for cultural studies. You're like the person who, who has decided that while you live in a, a place that teaches English uh, or that speaks English primary language, and while you live in a place that teaches English as a primary language, while you live in a place where you work and they, they speak English, you've decided for the, the cultural experience to go take Spanish or French. Actually, more than Spanish, because that's probably more applicable. But it's more like the person who decides, I'm going to go take French in northwest Arkansas. And see, without the longing for the second advent, in conjunction with your celebration and remembrance of the first advent, then without that longing, then it becomes more like the person who takes French just because it seems like the thing to do. It's, It's bettering my life. Grandma used to go to church. I'm going to go to church because that's what betters your life. But you see, for the first Christmas was all about the longing for Messiah. Think about this for a moment. Let's take ourselves out of our time for a moment. Right now, if you're longing for Christ's return, think about those people before the Messiah was born. They knew as the Messiah was to come. They waited generations and generations. Think about from the beginning of time. Think about from when Noah and the flood, and then it starts over again, right? And all these people, because the wickedness creeps right back in, right? The, the sin begins to entrap again, and, and they're in that world, and then captivity happens, and they're, and they're just dealing with all the crud like we deal with now, and they're just, I wish the Messiah would come. And some of them, in their faith, had probably fallen asleep like much of the church today, where they kind of just begin to treat it like history. Well, we, we go and we celebrate this Passover, right? Because what is the Passover about? It's about when the Messiah would come, right? It's, it's a story about when they were delivered. God delivered them. Remember um, with the, the death angel passed over the doorpost, they put the blood, the, the lamb's blood on the door, and, it, and the death angel passed over to, to keep their firstborn males from dying like, like Pharaoh's did and, those, and the plague. So that's what the purpose is. It was about a salvation message, God reaching in, God breaking into their history and offering salvation for their people. They were longing for a king who would come deliver them from the harsh realities of this world in the same way they longed for that coming advent that Advent awakens inside of us that longing, a similar, a, similar, um, a similar longing for deliverance from the sin, oppression, hurt, death, heartache that's in this world. Could you imagine if you could just wish it and it happened that Jesus come back before this last election? No need for results. No need to worry about what the future of our country is because Jesus is coming back. That longing for rescue from a broken and hurting and and, and horrible existence. Advent is the cry of those of us who have been touched by injustice in a world that is living under a curse of sin. But Advent also reminds us not only uh, there is injustice in the world, not only that we are impacted by the curse of sin, but within the message of Advent is a message of hope. As the God who heard the cries of generations of the oppressed, previous generations of slaves, and responded to them, and delivered them, 
Whether it be from Egypt or multiple times he heard their cry, Advent is a reminder to us that he will also hear our cry. You see, when we say Christmas, that's what that should mean. But even we as Christians, it's become so commercialized that I don't think we get that out of Christmas. But in truth, Advent is a real season. Today is the first, the first Sunday of Advent. Today is actually the first season. We'll be, we'll be in four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. That is the Advent, uh, the celebration of Advent. It's a hope, however faint it may seem, that God is, however, however distant he may seem at times, it brings us to anticipate a king who will return and rule with truth, justice, and righteousness over his people and over all creation. And it was a hope that was anticipated in the past as generations awaited the first advent. That is a hope that is fresh and new and should be fresh and new in our hearts as we await the second advent because we yearn like those did before the Messiah came and in swaddling clothes as a babe as they awaited the anointed one. A Messiah who will ultimately one day bring peace, justice, and righteousness to this world. Not only will you see that anticipation building up to Christmas, the first coming, you see that yearning all through the New Testament awaiting the second advent of Christ, and you see it throughout history. Throughout the history of Christianity, you see it. You can hear it in the 12th century hymn penned in Latin, but when it was translated into English, it reads, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. It was penned in some of the most meaningful hymns for this season. There's a sense that in that song, that yearning, come God, live among us, rescue us, come be our king. Just because the election's over and and whether you felt like the lesser of the two evils was elected or whatever you felt about it, the, the deal is this, is there is a perfect king, a perfect leader, that if you fix your eyes on them, if you look to them for your training and leadership, if you look to them to speak on your behalf, if you look to that leader, you'll never be disappointed. As long as you're kingdom-minded. Advent is that hope that if God can and will break into history once, God can and will break into history again. And with him, bring all that is hoped for to right what is wronged in this world. We are fighting with our words for justice that we have no right to obtain. Do you understand what I'm saying? Christianity has become about our word slinging to fight for a justice we have no right to. Because we are not righteous. The righteousness of Christ that shines through it is his righteousness. Ownership belongs to him. And when you, try to, when you try to lay claim to a righteousness that does not belong to you, but you are only the steward of, and to be a good steward of, when you lay claim to that righteousness and say, I am righteous enough that I can hold that sinner in contempt of that righteousness. Now, there's a difference between calling sin, sin, and we're not going to get into this, but, but there's a different attitude, and we know what we're talking about. Y'all know, you can sense it in the way you see the, the conversations happening. But we have to be very careful that we are not proclaiming it as our own righteousness, that we have some right that, to bring justice because Jesus, when he comes back as that warrior king to set up his kingdom, he will be the one. He will be the one. He is the advocate and God will be the righteous judge. 
If he, if he will come and wrap himself as a baby in a manger to rescue us, then surely he will break into human history right now and he might help us and heal us. Ultimately, the hope is he will not break into the future as a baby in a manger, but a warrior king, conquering king, who will right every wrong and reverse every injustice. Christmas or Xmas, finding what's lost. Before, the, uh, before uh, the religious part of us gets offended um, that I even use the term Xmas or that even could um, title a message as such, I want you to listen in, in, into full intent behind the message before you get offended. To our Chris, culture, Christmas has become Xmas because culture has missed the point. We have lost the Christ that is supposed to go into Christmas and the holiday is no longer a holy day. So each week during this series, we are going on expedition, an archaeological dig of sorts, uh, to unearth or rediscover the real meaning of Christmas that has been buried under generations of Americana, uh, consumerism, materialism, and greed. So before we go, uh, before we go any further, let me get in back into that Xmas. See, that was not originally done for political correctness. That was originally not done to offend Jesus or offend his followers. Xmas was not done uh, just to omit Christ. See, in early Christianity, Christians often used the first letter of a Greek word to abbreviate uh, a legitimate shorthand for the name of that person or that thing. For example, most everyone here is probably aware that a fish is the international symbol of Christianity. You see it on cars, you see it on business cards, bracelets, shirts, but most of us don't know how the fish symbol came to be an international symbol. Let me, let me show you, and this is where I'm going to have to trust that this will, will stay for me long enough. Let's see, where did the... Okay, the markers are there. Okay, a little whopper job, but we're okay. Got to be careful with this thing. The frame came off and it's metal. It's kind of sharp. Okay. So, the word Jesus Christ, the, the symbols, uh, most of us know the fish symbol, but it was an international symbol, but the word Jesus Christ, the words Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, when written in order in the Greek, the first letters of those words, Jesus Christ, Son, Savior, spell out the Greek word ethos, which is fish. So the symbol for those who believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior, that symbol is a fish. Historians have also said that it was a secret symbol in ancient days that was used to identify if it was safe to be a Christ follower. So what would happen is they would be traveling along and if they would come in contact with someone else, they would begin to doodle in the sand or whatever and they would make an arch. And if that other follower, as they're watching Doodle, came up and completed that arch as such, another arch, that was the secret symbol. It was safe to speak about being a Christ follower. So when Saul, before he was Apostle Paul, hunted down Christians and, and Christians were being murdered for their faith in Christ, uh, Roman Empire days when Saul lived, Nero eventually became emperor and would put Christians in the Colosseum to be mauled by lions just for sport. It was important to know who you were talking to about Christ. It is important to know that that other person was a Christ follower. 
So that was the origins from what historians tell us of how the fish came about. It was because the first letters, which were used for abbreviations, that was normal. You've you got to keep in mind, too, when oral history became written history, they had such a reverence for the name of God that often they didn't want to write it out. I mean, we, we kind of freak out if you lowercase God, right? Some of us that grew up have a little bit of the religious in us. We freak out if somebody does that. You don't lowercase God. In fact, if you ever lowercase God, sometimes you go retype it, don't you all uppercase the whole thing? You feel like you're making up for it. I see some of you grinning. It's like, oh, I'll make up for it. I'll just uppercase everything. And then, then you get to where it's like uh, our God. So I'm going to uppercase our and God. You know, but we, we have that. Well, well, there is an importance of how they wrote it. So, um, so they did this um, by, the, by identifying the first letters of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. So in the same way, the first letter of Christ in the Greek is X. Translated in the English, it's Christos. But when, when written in the Greek, the first letter is an X. And so it was very common for early Christians as a matter of shorthand, not in a derogatory way, but in a politically, or not in a politically correct way, it was synonymous with the first letter of the name of Christ. It's actually a sign of respect to Christ. They used the first letter of the name. It was kind of like we're leaving off the rest because he is too great for us to even finish. So while it's not, while it, it did not start out as a way to remove Christ, it seems that over the years our culture has conveniently used the X as a way to remove Christ's influence in our culture. But isn't it kind of neat? We know how Jesus said that the church will never go away, never defeat the church. When you think about this, think about what they're dealing with with Rome and all the stuff that happened back then. Where's the Rome Empire today? We can go through the list. Where are all of them today? But where's the church today? Still thriving. And so while the, the culture has tried to remove Christ by putting the X, they actually, in a way, uh, because Christ is very crafty that way, Jesus is very crafty that way, um, they've actually honored him in an ancient way. Now, the reason I'm making an issue about this, this is not just so that you can go, oh, Pastor CJ taught us about the X in Xmas. And now we can feel better and sleep at night because it's not as evil. And it may be, but it's, but I don't know. I don't know what I got from his message. I think it was not evil, but maybe it's still evil. I don't know. But X in our culture denotes an unknown quantity or quality. The X doesn't mean what it used to. It's not the same as it was in ancient Greek culture. In fact, that's where we get our use of the X factor. There's a show, X factor. If you think about what they're saying and what the purpose of that is, those people that come up with this talent that just wows them, you've got the X factor. We really don't know what it is. We don't really know how, why you're so awesome. Well, you know, you sing as good as the last 10 people that won the last 10 seasons, but you've got the X factor. We're not sure what it is. So this X quantity, it's an unknown quantity or quality, and it's something about the unknown. Uh, in algebra, the equation for 4X plus 6 equals uh, 10X. The X is the own unknown quantity in that equation. When you solve it, you have to figure out what the X is. So when I see Xmas, it makes me think that it's our culture's altar to an unknown God. Much like Paul encountered in Acts of the Mars Hill where the people built an altar to an unknown God just to make sure they didn't miss him among all their idols. 
It's just interesting how I'm sure someone thought they were being crafty and they did it. And they didn't realize the rich history with that X and what that meant and then placing it there. That everything, I think that's where we find that everything is wrapping up and folding into end times prophecy. That it's just like if we could read God's memoirs, you know, of what's going on, of what he's writing in the eternal book, you know, what's going on, that, that really all of them are falling in as pawns. You know, even we know that God, like I talked about with the politics, God used pagan nations to turn his people back to God. Things are bad right now because God is trying to get our attention. That is the purpose of why it's for God's purpose is to turn his people back to God. Our nation used to know who the X is, but we've lost him. I'm going to make some statements, as I said at the beginning, a few minutes that might have the probability of offending somebody, but please know it's not my intention. So I offer you my apology in advance the next few moments. But my heart as a pastor is I want us to grow up. As a church, I want us to get over our pettiness. I, I, and I don't just mean this church. I mean Christendom in, in, in America. We don't even say America anymore. We're, see, we should be mad that people are leaving out the A. Somehow that's become cool. America. We get all upset about the X, but we don't care about the A. It's alphabet soup anymore. So you each will influence other Christians on your journey outside the church. And it's my job to help you equip that. There are Christians who I'm friends with, um, you know, through other realms, whether it's a jail ministry or otherwise, and they have even had difference with me over our approach to ministry or, or this and that. I mean, I mean, where focus is all messed up. I want us to grow out of our pettiness that distracts us from the real issues that are at hand. And we are, are never going to grow up until we realize we are no longer living a Christian nation. I, I'm, I'm just wanting to lay this to rest at the end of 2016. So please, please take that word as bond. We no longer live in a Christian nation. We live in a non-Christian nation. The days of Mar- Mayberry are gone. My kids and I, we love, our family loves to watch um, Andy Griffith's show. But it's no longer the Andy Griffith show. There's no longer a, a Walton's America. The, the, the cleavers no longer are alive, nor the nation that they lived in. And the longer we try to recapture a day that has gone, gone by, the more that we are going to ignore the world we live in. We're going to live in a daydream. While, while, while the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we're inactive as a church because we're fascinated and focused on the day we want to recapture. Christians, if we are so focused on that past and not on the present, if we don't wake up and realize the world that we live in, that we as Christians and followers are aliens in a fallen world, that, that that's why I can't understand why there is such an uproar over non-Christian companies that don't celebrate Christmas. And we're amazed when sinners act like sinners. We expect sinners to act like believers. L- listen to this newsflash. Starbucks, Starbucks is not a Christian company. Now, I purposely picked an old topic because I didn't want to step on toes so hard in case there's something I didn't know was going on. You know, the latest thing that happened on Facebook today that I missed before the sermon, you know, and you're going to think I'm picking on you. So let's just go back to 2015 over the Red Cups. You remember the Red Cup debauchery, right? Starbucks never claimed to be a Christian company. 
Yet in 2015, there was a media frenzy over the red cup because they omitted some holiday symbol, a snowflake or something. They omitted something from the cup. And they never used Christian symbols on their cups before. And, but that's not what, what amazes me. What amazes me is there was, um, what's worse than that is that there are Christians that are mad at other Christians because they get offended at the other Christians for not being mad at Starbucks. We got Christians mad at Christians because those Christians should be mad at Starbucks and they're not doing their job as Christians to be mad at Starbucks. But Starbucks never claimed to be a Christian company. So we would rather hold them to some holy, righteous, pharisaical standard and tell them that you must act like a believer because this is our culture. This is our Christian nation. And you must conform to us. Who cares about relationship with Christ? I just want your behavior to match with what my world wants it to be. Because I can't stand the fact that it's not Mayberry anymore. And so because of that bitterness, I'm going to react in a way that's very unchristlike. I'm going to line up right with the Pharisees and I'm going to point my finger at the unbeliever and say, act as a believer. But I do not have time to show you the Savior. So I have placed the X in your Christmas because I have shown you an unknown God. One that expects you to behave before you fellowship. One that expects you to act before you know. That's what religion will do to you. That's what a religious spirit will make out of you. It's easier for us to focus on pagans acting like pagans and what they do wrong instead of focusing on what we are not doing right. The day this church is open all day, uh, all day, every day of the week because people can't get enough of coming to the altar and praying to God, then I will say, maybe we have a voice in our culture against this pagan worship. Remember the altar and dousing with water? I shouldn't have taken it off my Facebook profile, but I have this awesome picture where God was lighting up the altar after it had been doused, right? And the reason I put that there, and I like that, is because that's what I believe us Christians should be doing. Instead of drawing a line in the sand out there over these other, these other, around these other topics, to focus on God and say, my God will prove himself right. Not I prove them wrong. But God will prove himself and I'm willing to stand up and live in such a way that he does it. Getting focused on Starbucks, not putting snowflakes on a red cup is convenient, a convenient diversion for religious people to focus on what's going on in the culture and focus on people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And it helps us conveniently ignore the emptiness and maybe even the wickedness that is in our own hearts. Why should we be offended when pagans won't celebrate religious holidays? If the church would have as much righteous concern and compassion and indignation about professed believers who stumble drunk out of clubs, cursing on Facebook, gossiping, backbiting, lying, uh, watching explicit material, being hateful, or uh, the high rate of infidelity in Christian marriages, if we were that righteous and, and, and had righteous indignation about helping those, pulling them from the mire... Maybe we'd have a voice in our, in our culture. And when we say Xmas and talk about the culture removing Christ from Christmas, we automatically assume we're talking about how America has lost its way. And we may look at it that and how Christmas has been buried under materialism, but I want to look at the real story of what Christmas should be. Uh, we need to be honest that this might be the Xmas for all of us because we get so focused on everything else that we miss the Christ in Christmas. 
we as a church, as a modern Christians, may be addicted to, uh, to fairy tale past. There was abductions and sex trafficking in Jesus' day, and so there was in the days of Mayberry, and so there has been. The difference is, is now uh, the media has gotten to the point where any juicy story, anything horrible that will get attention sells, and now we hear about it so much more. Has that all probably increased? Yes. But we seem to act as if all of a sudden the days of yesteryear were so perfect. Let me tell you something, they weren't perfect. There was evil people doing evil things. And, you know, we lose that until we start talking about Hitler. Or we lose that until we go before the, the one before Hitler. Or we go before that. We lose that as Christians and somehow think that our past has been so rosy. But there has been evil and tragedy to, to the utmost all through human history. We are so caught up in all the rhetoric and get behind our computer screens and our petty things and, and the world watches us argue over things that really don't matter and we're, cla- we're claiming instead of being. We're claiming instead of being. We're claiming to be Christians instead of being Christ. Hands extended. His voice extended. The real issue is who cares what Starbucks does? I'm more concerned about what we're doing and being because that is the only way left the world has to see Christ and, and the advent who is coming to them living in human flesh. Let me tell you something as your pastor. You will do more harm to the kingdom by the way you approach people about the pettiness than you not doing anything at all and sitting in a pew. You sitting silent in a pew and refusing to be active in your walk with the Lord is less harmful than you going out trying to be an activist over these petty things. is a pastor's nightmare for what goes on sometimes over social media and in the community. Sometimes we run around having to put out fires that, the, that, that believers cause because they think somehow they got this right to claim that righteousness that belongs to Christ. And they're not letting Him shine through. They want to shine through what they think they've cleaned up in their life. I'm going to church. I don't do all these other bad things. So now it's my right to tell everybody else how wrong they are. If we want them to discover what's missing in Xmas, then we have to discover what's missing in our lives. We could very well miss Jesus in a season meant to focus the real reason he came. The difference between fellowship and relationship, I want to cover that for a moment before we close. The difference between fellowship and relationship. If you drift from fellowship, even as a Christ follower, you end up being in relationship, but out of fellowship, and you feel lost. You feel restless. What happens is the, the believer who has accepted Christ, they get to the point where they are living it in name only, but they have lost in fellowship in Christ. And so they begin to feel this emptiness and they feel restless. And so they have to find something to occupy their time. And all they know is identify myself as a Christ follower. They even lose track of what the word says a Christ follower should be. And they begin projecting their own version out to society, which also does more harm to the gospel. In the middle of this season, we must focus on him. But sometimes in our lives, Jesus goes missing. Exactly as Mary and Joseph do in Luke chapter 2. They had just had a wonderful trip, and discovering they lost Jesus, they turned and found him, and this is what they, they said. Verse 48, So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. 
See, without fellowship, you'll always feel empty, alone, and restless. There is a sorrow when we lose fellowship with Christ. I know we're talking about a mother and a father who lost their son, but I believe there's a deeper meaning to that, that scripture where they literally think about this. They were on a trip that was a foreshadowing of Christ's coming. The Passover was a foreshadowing of Him coming. That just like God had reached into human history and uh, impacted their history and rescued them with a Passover lamb, right? He's a foreshadowing. They lost him. You see, the most miserable person is not the unbeliever. Many times we say it must be miserable to not know Jesus. I'm so glad I know Jesus because I'd be miserable without him. Well, that may be true, but you know who the most miserable person is? The believer who has lost fellowship with Christ. So I just want to cover a few points in closing. From Luke 2, who lost him? Who lost him? Mary and Joseph, the most intimately associated people with Jesus, and they lost him. We are all susceptible to drift. If you sit here today and you think that this message is not directly at you, the Holy Spirit hasn't directed right between your eyes, then you have become the Pharisee that has drifted and believes you're not susceptible to drift. You see, every bit of the word of God pricks my heart when I allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. When it stops pricking my heart, because I've heard it before, or because I think I'm safe, then I'm beginning to drift. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. Second thing, when they lost him. As I said, Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover, a foreshadowing of Jesus to come, and they lost him during this religious celebration that was really all about him. This Passover was prophetic, is a prophetic foreshadowing, and they lost him at his own foreshadowing. Irony of all ironies. God created this festival to point at Christ, and they lost him at that festival. If we're not careful, we'll do the same. You can backslide with a Bible under your arm. You can backslide singing in the choir or serving at a mission. Our business is, our, our business is a distraction from the lack of depth and the lack of fellowship. All the things that are busyness, I'm sorry, I said business. Our busyness, our busyness is, is often a distraction from the lack of fellowship we have in our lives. When we begin to drift, what happens is we have to plug something in to cover for that, that meaning in our life. And here's the slippery slope. We all know it as believers who have been believers for a while is you can't fill that void. But even ministry happens to ministers all the time. E- even awesome work for God that you're doing it for the work of God. How did the Pharisees get to where they went? How did Saul, before he became Paul, get to the point of persecuting Christians in the name of God? It's because of slippery slope. Once my, relation, once my fellowship, it was relationship only but not fellowship, began to slip, I had to start placing other things in there to fill that void, and none of it could fill it. So I keep putting more and more. I become busier and busier. Here's something interesting for me working with people with addictions. Now, that's weird for me to say because it's now been four years, and while that's not long, but I have been working now solidly, I mean, as of this week even. I, I, we're working on trying to get somebody else into Teen Challenge. It's just consistent. Um, but from working on that, here's, here's the thing. And this doesn't just cover drug addiction. I have a dear friend I grew up with that, that has uh, had wrestled with homosexuality. And, and here's the deal. 
I've watched a pattern. And when they start to slip, they begin to try to put other things to keep them busy. They begin to, to try to make themselves so busy that they think that will, that will replace that void and that will keep them from slipping further. But what happens is they make themselves busy. They can't even hear from God. He's trying to reach them and they're ignoring all the signs and, and they keep slipping further and further. It's an it's a interesting thing. It's a sad thing, but it's an interesting thing Satan does. It seems to be indicative of any kind of addiction. It could be pornography, it could be drugs, it could be homosexual, it could be anything. But, but it happens. And so we have to be careful that while we are in a season that is focused on Christ, just like the Passover was supposed to be foreshadowing him, that we don't lose him. That we don't lose the fellowship with him. It becomes about being in name only or about, about uh, wearing the badge of Christian but losing in the fellowship because the fellowship with him is what will guide your heart. You see, your heart is left on that slippery slope if you are not fellowshipping with him. Even good things can come between you and Jesus. And I'm amazed how they lost him. The third and last that I want to see from this is how they lost him. In verse 44, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. They got a day away. They were a full day's journey away. A day's journey, really? They continued on their life, on with their life, assuming he was along with them. And I have to ask you, have you stopped long enough to know, is he with you? Or are you just assuming? Are, are you standing on the theology of grace so strongly that you are now in danger of trampling on that grace, as Paul talked about, not, not to sin that grace may abound? But have you gotten to the point where you have just depended on that theology of grace so much that you haven't even realized that you've left Jesus behind somewhere. You've lost him. Their 12-year-old son, the son of God, the real story behind their trip. Has Jesus gone missing in your life? Is there no real fellowship anymore? And you've been assuming he's still there. I want us to bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I just... Thank you, Lord, that in this time, in this season of Advent, that on this first Sunday of Advent, God, that you have drawn us to something I believe will be part of our culture. Uh, I've seen other churches moving in that direction. But, Lord, there is a, a difference between us setting apart from the trappings of this world and making political statements, Lord, or making cultural statements. That God... We know in the true meaning of Advent, where Christmas may have lost its meaning for many, the name Christ has never lost its meaning. Whether they try to replace it with an X or whatever they do, you will still get all the glory. Your word doesn't return void. Your church will never be abolished. But Lord, sadly enough, the church is made up of people who all have free will and individual decisions on whether they will lose fellowship with you. Whether they will try to remain a card-carrying member stating relationship or whether they're truly ensure that they have not even gone a day's journey away before they realize that they're beginning to lose fellowship with you. Jesus, I thank you. 
praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to take a moment, and I know we're already at, at uh, about 1020. We usually end at 1015, but um, one of our volunteers have prepared communion today, so if I could get, if I get Branson, would you help me with pass out the elements here if you are um, willing to take communion today to remember what Christ did on the cross for us. Jesus leading up to the crucifixion we refer to his last supper it was a last fellowship it was a last time for him in the flesh to, to really fellowship with his followers and so um, he asked us to do that in remembrance of him any time that we're remembering him and today how fitting with the message while we remember the true reason for the season the advent that we, we take communion together and fellowship with him and so um, he he took the, the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. When you take it, it's, it's representative of his broken body that, that offered salvation and healing for us. So let's take it together.
And in the same way, he, they poured the cup and he, he raised it and he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Representing the blood that washes our sins white as snow. Let's take it together. Thank you, Jesus. In closing, let's just sing the, the song together. that you'll be here in the following uh, Sundays. I know that there's a few of you that probably travel, but uh, we're looking forward to a great time. It's still, we're still deciding on uh, whether it be a Friday evening or, uh, or a Saturday Christmas Eve service, but we will have service before Christmas. But with Christmas being on, the, on Sunday, uh, we again want you to spend that time with family. I know some of you may even be traveling, but um, we will be announcing that by next Sunday uh, about whether it be a Friday evening or a Saturday service. But we love y'all. God bless you and have a great day.